Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows that four out of five doctors recommend True Crime Garage. Here is the captain. And the fifth doctor is locked in our basement. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Eternal Autumn, brewed by the great women and men over at Track 7 Brewing Company. This is a West Coast-style India pale ale featuring HBC 586, Idaho 7, and Mosaic hops, and it's brewed on the West Coast. ABV 6.8%, beautiful beer can art on the tall pint can, and you are going to want to try this one because here we go, Captain. I'm going to do it. Eternal Autumn, five out of five bottle caps. Boom. Get you some. And in the garage, it's always a great autumn because of all of you out there in listener land. So let's give some thanks and praise. First up, a cheers to Heather and beautiful Punta Gorda, Florida. And a big we like your jib to Alex in Norfolk, Virginia. And here's a cheers to Holly in Temecula, California. And last but certainly not least, we have Chase from Olympia, Washington. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. If you're not following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, then you're missing out on the True Crime Conversations. Make sure you follow us there at True Crime Garage. Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Thirty years have passed since the murder of 24-year-old Tracy Renee Harkness. Tracy was found having been attacked and beaten to death inside her apartment that she shared with her 18-month-old daughter. Tracy and her ex-husband shared custody of the little girl. The apartment was located in an otherwise safe neighborhood in one of Columbus, Ohio's many suburbs. Friday, November 6, 1992, was a horrifying day that forever changed the lives of everyone who knew and loved Tracy. There were no signs of forced entry into the apartment, and police ruled out burglary as a motive. Investigators said the attack on Tracy was a crime of passion. Detective Cindy Atkinson with Grove City Police is quoted as saying, it was a very brutal crime, a very personal crime. She had over 36 wounds. Over half of those were fatal wounds. Tammy Bowling, Tracy's mother, said, I remember just lying on the couch and saying to God, I have no reason to live anymore. The Bowling family wants the killer to be caught for the sake of Tracy's now grown daughter. 
Tracy's family, and the Grove City Police Department are hoping that new technology and DNA testing will lead to an arrest. In the meantime, Tracy's family has something to say to the killer. If you did this, get it off your conscience and go tell. Tracy's family wants this killer brought to justice. If you know who killed Tracy Renee Harkness, call the Grove City Police Department at 614-277-1710 or to submit a tip and remain anonymous, you can call it in at 614-645-TIPS. That's 614-645-8477. Or you can email our show by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. This is the still unsolved homicide case of Tracy Harkness, 30 years later. And this is True Crime Garage. Grove City, Ohio. Today, the population is about 42,000 people. 30 years ago, when this case took place, it was about half of that, 20,000 people. Grove City is a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and back then, it was very much your standard blue and white-collar area. A lot of hardworking folks, many who worked in the greater Columbus area, and after work, they would retire to their three- and four-bedroom homes in the not-quite-what-you-would-call-a-sleepy-town. As Grove City was kind of hustle and bustle, especially during the daylight hours. But after the sun goes down, if we are talking about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, it turns to a ghost town rather quickly. Pretty standard Midwestern town. Late at night, you're going to get a few people out, really hardly any cars out on the street. And as you said, Captain, Grove City was very much your typical middle-class suburb with some of its citizens living on the fringes of both ends of that middle-class spectrum. Now, as we said in the trailer, our victim, Tracy Harkness, was found deceased in her apartment. She lived in the Regency Arms apartment complex. Tracy had only lived in the apartment that she was killed in for about two and a half months before the attack. The apartment complex occupied three square city blocks and was made up of several buildings, most of them like Tracy's building, which was a four-family brick unit. Tracy's unit was a two-story unit. The apartments were moderately priced and occupied by a wide range of tenants. Her two-bedroom place had a front door and a back door with parking for her vehicle by the rear entrance to the apartment. Tracy still had unpacked boxes of various personal items around the place, when she was killed. One of the things that made these apartments unique was they ha- had a main floor. You had your bedrooms on the second floor and you also had a basement. Neighbors told the media that Tracy was quiet, friendly, and respectable. She kept to herself and didn't make any waves. On November 6, 1992, at 2.37 p.m., police officers were dispatched to the Regency Arms apartment complex at 3474 Richard Avenue in Grove City. On an unknown emergency call, some people called 911 and reported that a woman was badly injured. 
We have Steve Hutter and Lori Short. They were the ones to sound the alarm. Lori was Tracy's cousin. She and Steve stayed with Tracy a few weeks earlier, but they had left behind some keys. On Friday, November 6th, they stopped by Tracy's to pick them up. Steve told investigators that Lori knocked on the back door of the apartment but got no answer. They went to the back door because that was the door Tracy and pretty much everyone else used. This portion of the apartment complex was built in a U-shape around a rear parking lot where the residents had spaces to park their cars. As a result, most residents didn't use their front doors other than to get their mail or the newspaper. Tracy was no exception. And Lori and Steve noted that her car was indeed in the parking lot right behind her unit when they pulled up. Tracy was known to keep the back door unlocked when she was at home. When they got no answer at the rear door, Steve walked around to the front door and noted with surprise that the door was open about six to eight inches. So he went inside and yelled for Tracy. When he got no response, he looked in the dining area and he saw some socked feet. There, he found Tracy Harkness lying on the floor. He hastily went outside and knocked on doors to get help. He yelled to Lori telling her to get back in the car and stay there. No one answered his knocks, so when he saw a pickup truck pulling up across the street, he ran across the street and told the occupants to call 911. The driver called police, and the other guy went with Steve back into the residence to check the victim. Unfortunately, they were unable to find any vital signs. The Regency Arms Apartments, located in Grove City, are probably less than five miles from the police department. Grove City Police Detective Stephen Robinette was in the area and responded to the scene. When he arrived, the detective found the apartment resident, identified as Tracy Harkness, lying face up in the dining area of the apartment. She was pronounced dead by medics at 2.44 p.m. Detective Robinette secured the scene and commenced what would then become a three-decades-long investigation. Neighbors started to gather outside the Regency Arms apartment. Additional detectives arrived on scene and started interviewing some of the witnesses. Detectives quickly noted the following. Tracy's car was found parked in her usual spot, located near the rear entrance to the apartment. The rear door deadbolt was locked, but the front door deadbolt was unlocked. And remember when Steve, Tracy's friend, saw the front door, it was already open, about six to eight inches. So according to detectives' notes, there was no sign of force entry. And quickly it was learned that there was a duplicate key to the apartment. But that key was missing. Steve and the man who assisted Steve relayed to detectives that he noticed that Tracy suffered severe head wounds and cuts to her forehead and cheeks. Steve said she was hard to the touch. They both said she was blue. Detectives already knew this. The woman inside the apartment was quickly identified as Tracy Harkness and had clearly been dead for quite some time. There was no emergency as far as the victim was concerned. She was beyond help, unfortunately, at this point. 
But there was an emergency when detectives learned that the victim had an almost two-year-old daughter, Megan, who lived with her in the apartment. Other than clothing and some kid-related toys and items in the residence, there was no sign of little Megan. So detectives fanned out through the neighborhood, scoured it for Megan. Meanwhile, Tracy's mother, Tammy Bowling, arrived on the scene and was quickly taken to police headquarters to be interviewed. She was able to tell detectives that Megan was likely with her father, Mike Harkness, Tracy's ex. A visit to Mike's home address located his fiancée, Sherry, who related that Megan was with her paternal grandmother and Mike was out of town for the day on a hunting trip. A phone call to Megan's grandmother confirmed that the little girl was there, safe and sound. The investigation shifted from a potential kidnapping in progress to a homicide investigation. But it's strange because we see this in so many cases where the victim's partner or ex-partner is out of town that day. I could see how that would lead law enforcement to be suspicious of that individual. Let's learn more about Tracy Harkness. Tracy Renee Harkness was born on September 23rd, 1968. Her mother was Tammy Bowling, who used to be married to Tracy's father, Rick. Both were now remarried. Tracy had two brothers. She graduated from Heritage Christian in Columbus in 1987. She attended the Columbus Para Professional Institute from 1987 to 1988. In November of 1992, Tracy was a 24-year-old single mother. It's fair to say that Tracy's life was in flux at this time. She had been having a hard time holding down a job and maintaining a residence as of late. Her recent employer said she was friendly and easy to work with, but she spent a lot of time on the phone on personal calls. When she died, she was working at a new job as a secretary. She also had a part-time job a few nights a week helping out at a friend's jewelry business. So she definitely had a full plate. Tracy was a longtime member of the Grace Memorial Church on Christ and Christian Union. She attended church sporadically. She tended to go to church for a while when things weren't going so well in her life or she was feeling guilty, but that would last short term. She had been attending church at the time of her death and had recently spent an hour at the altar vowing to stay out of bars, spend more time with Megan, and be a better mother. Her pastor told police that he thought that Tracy seemed unhappy. Tracy also attended jazzercise classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tracy's friends and family said she drank socially, but not to excess, and she wasn't known to do drugs. Well, like we said before, Tracy's ex-partner or ex-husband was on a hunting trip that day. What's fascinating about their relationship was they were actually married to each other twice. His name, as we said earlier, Captain, is Michael Harkness. The first time around, the marriage was dissolved in April of 1990. But shortly after the breakup, Tracy discovered that she was pregnant and she and Mike remarried for the sake of the child. Megan was born in January of 1991, and Mike and Tracy divorced again in April of 1992. Mike would later say that they were really only married for one month the second time around, from August to September in 1991. So the 
divorce the second time around ended in April of 1992, but we all know that paperwork and things like that take place so and can take some time. He's just stating, look, we were really only together and trying to be together for a much shorter period of time than what it looks like on paper. According to Tracy's friends, she and her ex-husband got along very well and spoke almost daily, this because they shared custody of little Megan. Well, in a perfect world, all people that shared kids together would have a healthy relationship for their kids. Detective Robinette, who would be the lead on this case, noted that many people describe Tracy as a very outgoing yet lonely person who always seemed to be searching for happiness. Well, there's probably many of us out there that can relate to Tracy. Detectives noted that Tracy went to local bars in the evening when she was not at home with her child, when she didn't have to watch or care for Megan. A few people said that she would sometimes pick up men, and she tended to fall for men much faster than they were comfortable with, and sometimes she had become confrontational. Hmm. There was at least one report that she would show up at the place of these guys' employment or at their home unexpectedly. Now, in more than one case, a man she was seeing was already in a relationship. Yeah, that's what we define as a stage five clinger. Detectives learned very quickly from talking to Tracy's friends that Tracy recently had a boyfriend and that they had broken up just two weeks earlier. This boyfriend, per her friends, was a young man named David Seelock. Seelock would quickly become a very interesting person to detectives when it was learned that David Seelock may have been in possession of the missing duplicate key to Tracy's apartment. Remember, we have no signs of forced entry into the home. Now, that doesn't mean that a key was used to gain access to the apartment. We could have a situation where Tracy let her killer or killers into the apartment. Yeah, or just didn't lock the door behind her when she entered her apartment. Let's get into this investigation a little bit further here, Captain. The Franklin County Coroner's Office sent forensic pathologist Keith Norton out to the crime scene. He took note of multiple lacerations of the scalp, an abrasion on the left chest, and a compound fracture of the left little finger on Tracy Harkness. Tracy, when she was found, she was fully clothed. She was found wearing jeans, a shirt, and a green, black, and white sweater. An autopsy was performed the following day after she was found. Tracy had defensive wounds on both hands, and her little finger was fractured. Abrasions were noted on the right side of her neck, the left chest and back, a laceration was on her right forehead. A linear cut was seen on her right cheek. Examination of the victim's head led to the discovery of 30 plus, 30 plus injuries to the scalp and numerous skull fractures. That's a vicious attack. Some injuries were completely through the skull and into the brain. On the left side and back of the head, the wounds tended to be long, linear, single wounds that were 1.1 to 1.2 centimeters long and half a centimeter wide. This is a lot of injuries. This is a pretty severe attack where it looks to me, Captain, the, the lay guy here, that 
we got somebody that's probably has attacked her. And then we're seeing rapid fire blows once the attack commences. And normally when a victim has that many wounds, it's, it's more likely that they knew the killer. The lacerations to the right side of the scalp and the top of the head tended to be two short wounds side by side. That's per the documentation here. Two short wounds side by side. The distance between the twin marks in each of these wounds was three-eighths of an inch. So it's one of these situations where you look at this and, and say, okay, what kind of weapon would have been used to leave these marks right on our victim or do we have a situation where Tracy was attacked by two different people on different sides of of her right that would make some sense a lot of wounds to the victim is there any evidence that she put up a fight that maybe she left wounds on her attacker it's hard to say if she would have left any wounds on her attacker, but she definitely put up a fight. There was significant defensive wounds and even some other indications that she put up a fight beyond the defensive wounds that were found. So the autopsy concluded that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Right. Basically, she was bludgeoned to death. Tracy had what is recorded as 36 different wounds with the majority of the trauma to the back of the head. Note that she had defensive wounds to both hands and people told detectives, look, Tracy could take care of herself. If, if she was attacked, she would have fought like a banshee and everything in the autopsy indicates that that was exactly the situation. I'm going to ask you a question and don't, don't look at me like I'm a moron. So she has a bunch of defensive wounds to her hands. That would make me think that the attacker was in front of her. But like you just stated, most of her head injuries seem like it was coming from behind her. That's correct. So my speculation would be one of two possibilities. And both seem likely, unfortunately. So we, we can't really deduce much from from this speculation or from the wounds, I believe, because I think, I, I think what we're seeing here based off of these wounds and the autopsy is that yes, there is some argument that she could have been attacked by two people, one on each side of her. However, think about how it would play out if it was just a one-on-one -on -one attack and her defensive wounds being to her hands, both of her hands. Right. If somebody were to raise a weapon and come at you, your natural reaction is going to be to put up your hands to defend your face or your body. Well, that's where you're wrong, Colonel, because my natural reaction would be to kick them in the nards. And she, pro she likely did this and at some point started to lose the fight. And if she struck from the front and falls forward, now we could have a situation where she is on all fours or she's on the floor right. attempting to get up to continue to defend herself. And now the attacker is striking what is right in front of him or her, which would be the back of her head. What's difficult for us to sit here and try to decipher is without being able to see the wounds or 
or a diagram of the wounds themselves, just reading the report as it is on paper does not give us any indication of what direction this weapon would have been coming from. Now, we have to compound that problem with we don't know 100% what weapon was used to attack Tracy Harkness. Right, and also just to be clear, she was found face up, which could mean that after the attack that she actually moved herself into that position to possibly get help. Correct. She could have been moved by the attacker. She could have moved herself. She could have actually successfully got up at some point during this attack. It's We're not saying this is how it went down exactly. We're just saying when you try to play this thing out, the scenario out based off of the information that is available, you could see it kind of working out that way if it was, in fact, a one-on-one attack. I wouldn't be so quick to lock myself into it being a one-on-one attack or a two-on-one or three-on-one attack. Yeah, it's just we live in a sad, cold world. Evidence collected at the autopsy included but was not limited to the following. Fingernail clippings and scrapings, finger and palm prints, blood samples, Tracy's clothing was collected and examined for trace evidence, no sexual assault occurred during the attack, a ring missing a stone was removed from her left finger, a mark on her right finger indicated that a ring was typically worn there, and it was the approximate size of a ring found on the floor near her foot. So... What I had talked about earlier there, Captain, goes along with this portion of the autopsy report. Right. Not only do we have the wounds to her hands, the defensive wounds to her hands, but what you're seeing is the items that she was wearing, these rings, suffered damage as well because they were probably blocking some of the attack. Detective Robinette wrote in his report that the weapon used to commit the murder had not been recovered but it was believed to be some type of clawed instrument as most of the wounds were in pairs and spaced the same distance apart. The weapon is believed to be some type of small, possible flat pry tool. Blunt instrument marks were found on the surface of the north wall in the dining area, and then rumors flew around town that Tracy had been attacked with a hammer. When you look at bags of dog food, you see pictures of bright carrots and juicy steaks. But when you open the bag, all you get are stale, smelly pellets. Dog food needs some fresh thinking. The farmer's dog is real, fresh, healthy food with whole meat and veggies gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve their nutritional value. The farmer's dog delivers a personalized vet develop meal plan for as little as three dollars a day meals arrive pre-portioned ready to serve packs and because they're delivered on your schedule you'll never run out dog people everywhere have ordered more than 200 million meals from the farmer's dog it's never been easier to invest in your dog's health with fresh food let me tell you my dog frankie frank the tank loves fresh food he loves the farmer's dog. He absolutely loves the food. No more stale, smelly pellets for Frank. And as a dog owner, 
you want to make sure that you're feeding your dog healthy, nutritious meals. Make the switch to the farmer's dog like I did. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash garage. Plus, you get free shipping. Just go to thefarmersdog.com slash garage to get 50% off your first box. That's thefarmersdog.com slash garage. Make the switch like I did. Check out thefarmersdog.com slash garage today. All right, we are back, and we like your jib. Cheers, Kurt. Cheers to you, Captain. Tall cans in the air. Now, before we get too far into the weeds of this investigation, I want to point out something that I noticed time and time again in this investigation, and you, the listener, will notice this throughout as well. This whole investigation was incredibly complicated by the fact that most of the people in Tracy's social circles, they all seem to know each other. And a lot of them seem to have been in some type of relationship with each other at one time or to be related to each other. This can help an investigation. This also can hinder an investigation. And the interview process for detectives must have been a major headache. Because on one hand, some of these people that we are going to discuss did not tell the whole truth to police. Some of them were covering for each other. Then on the other hand, rumors and speculation were rampant at the time. Everyone knew everyone else's business in this case, or at least they thought they did. This is because a lot of the people that we will discuss were in their early to mid-20s, and they were in bars a lot together, and there was a lot of gum flapping and chewing the fat going on at these bars in these social circles. Well, it also makes it difficult for law enforcement. You have, we've seen over and over with cases, the husband did it, or the ex-husband. So if I'm law enforcement, the first thing I'm doing is you get this vicious scene, this vicious murder scene. I'm looking at the ex to see if he has any wounds on him. I'm looking at the current boyfriend. Another thing that makes it difficult for law enforcement is when her friends say, look, she's she was quick to fall in love with people showing up at their work. Now the amount of people of interest it gets multiplied. That's exactly right there, Captain. Ohio BCI, along with Grove City Police, were assigned to the crime scene. The scene was photographed and videotaped. Now, here are a few things of note. As the captain pointed out, Tracy was found lying on her back on the carpet with a pool of blood under her head. Her legs were straight, her left arm bent, and her hand on her chest. Her right arm was extended out. Tracy was fully clothed with the exception of shoes. There was a lot of dried blood stains near the body location. There was dried blood found on a rug, the plastic baby gate leaning on the wall, the kitchen floor, various items like stuffed animals and shoes lying near the body and on the countertop south of the body. So a lot of blood in this dining room area is found near our body. Well, when you have these pools of blood, were there any footprints left behind? 
There was one partial footprint found at the scene that was determined not to belong to Tracy. I believe it was determined not to belong to Tracy because it, right. it's not stated as fact in the reports that it was not Tracy's footprint. But keep in mind, it, this was a shoe print, a partial shoe print that was found. Every indication that we have is that once the attack took place, our victim's not wearing any shoes at that time. Well, then on top of that, you have to rule out her friends that found her or anybody else that was at that scene. Yeah. By the time that she was found by these, you know, these friends and then the random person that the friend pulled in with him to, to go into the apartment the second time, the blood had already dried at the scene. So we'll, we'll get into her timeline. And I think without 100% certainty, we're not going to be able to narrow down the time of death to one hour, but it looks like investigators strongly believe that they know about what time she was killed. And we can base that off of a lot of other evidence that we will get into. Also found at the scene, Captain, we and near the body, we had a dish towel and pieces of paper towel that were left near her feet. Type notes say that a three-inch and one-half-inch patch of blood was smeared on the walls by the towels. A kitchen chair was on its side and blood spatter was nearby, indicating perhaps that Tracy was initially struck closer to the table. The remaining three chairs and dining table were not disturbed. Clumps and cut sections of hair were noted in various places on the dining room floor. What you can gather very quickly is that this is a was a vicious attack, and there's obvious signs of a struggle here, especially near the the body location. What's interesting to me, though. And and I think the listeners will note this as well. When we go through our, our brief description of what else is found in the apartment or the state of the apartment, it looks to me like this attack started and ended in this dining room area. It also makes sense, too, because let's say the attacker attacks her from behind. So then you'd have these wounds on the back of her head. She turns around to defend herself, and then that's how she gets the other defensive wounds. Detective Robinette said that nothing obvious was missing from the apartment and Tracy's purse and jewelry were in plain sight. So a robbery seemed unlikely here. Tracy's purse and car keys were on a large footstool in the living room area. A pair of women's black shoes were on the floor next to the stool. The TV in the apartment in the living room area was on. Flowers on the TV stand appeared to be a few days old. A toilet seat was up and urine samples were taken from the bowl. Some moving boxes, as we said, were still packed up and still found by detectives in the apartment. Detectives notes indicate that the attack was believed to have solely gone down in that dining area. Could you imagine, though? If it was that simple that Tracy was attacked, the person used the bathroom beforehand or they used the bathroom afterwards and just didn't flush. And that's how we end up catching this person. And to rewind back to what the friends were saying about how easily she was to fall in love with somebody, 
this opens up so many more possibilities because like you said one of the the guys that she was seeing for a time period was married so now you got this larger pool of people that you have to pull from not just a partner or ex-partner but possibly a partner of a partner right and what we will see once we get into these persons of interest is that unfortunately you could easily see a motive for a handful of people here in this case and as we pointed out earlier some of these persons of interest are in a relationship with another person of interest. Well, on top of that, there was no sexual assault. So if there was sexual assault, at least we would know if there was semen, then at least one of the attackers would have been male. The toilet seat being up, we've seen this in multiple cases. And the first suspicion then goes to, well, there must have been a man in that apartment or in that home shortly before the attack or or maybe even after the attack. Right. Look, I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know everybody's bathroom habits and don't really want to know them either. But well, if you did, I'd have to quit the show. I will say this. Like, I don't, my mind does not jump to a male perpetrator immediately because a toilet seat was left up. It's, I've, I, in my lifetime, I believe that for every one woman that insisted that the toilet seat be down or the, the lid be down constantly, there's been another woman that insists that it be up all the time. So I've never really looked at that and said, oh, that 100% locks me in on a male perpetrator. Very fascinating set of circumstances so far in this case. CSI text collected some items that appeared to be of evidentiary value. We had latent prints, blood samples from the spray and smears, and unspecified trace evidence. A bedspread from Tracy's bed with muddy shoe prints on it was collected, as well as an empty Marlboro cigarette pack. Yeah, it seems like somebody pulled a F your couch Rick James move on her bed. The thing that's interesting about the cigarette pack is note that we had said earlier that Tracy was known to drink socially. I've seen it reported that she would she may smoke on occasion when drinking, but it seems like most people are in agreement that Tracy was not a smoker. She was not a regular smoker. And then we have this Marlboro cigarette right. pack that is found in the apartment, but there's no other smoking materials found in the home. There's no ashtrays or uh, a lighter that is noted as well. So could this have been left by the killer, or is this a situation that it was left by somebody else prior to the attack and for whatever reason had just not been discarded of yet? Law enforcement is going to do a neighborhood canvas of the area went till November 8th. That would have been that Sunday and no eyewitness claims to have seen anything. Yeah. No one seemed to see anything unusual or hear anything of interest or of added value to our investigation here. This is really interesting to me based off of how violent the attack appears to have been. And you and I know that area fairly well, even 30 years ago, we knew it fairly well. And I would think that the belief is that, that the attack went down late at night probably on November 5th, sometime nearing the 11 o'clock hour. On a Thursday, late at night in that area 30 years ago, for an attack to be this violent, it would be 
I think it's strange that nobody heard anything. Now it's not impossible, but I find that it, that it to be strange and backing up that idea is detective Deskins who went on record and said, based on the overturned furniture and the scattered items near the body, it appeared there was a struggle adding quote. It's difficult to believe based on the struggle that no one heard anything End quote. Well, like you said, this is a, apartment complex. These are apartments that share walls. So you would think in some of the cases we've covered when somebody is attacked in a single family home, we have maybe not eyewitnesses, but ear witnesses. So it's very, very strange to me that we have nobody that thinks they heard anything. But also I wonder because they didn't initially have a great idea of when the attack happened that maybe when they were questioning these people, if you're questioning somebody on Sunday about something that happened Thursday, they might just not remember a little bang against the wall or, oh, maybe I did hear a somebody scream or a, a muffled scream. Right, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Tracy was killed late on Thursday evening and now we know that the body's not found until Friday afternoon. So you already have some delay there. I want to paint a little bit of a better picture, though, because one thing that I think is interesting in this case, first, let me address one thing that you you just brought up, sharing walls. Exactly right. In these apartments, I'm always fascinated when we have these types of attacks and struggles, when somebody hears something or didn't hear anything because you are sharing walls with your neighbors. Now, in Tracy's case, that four-family unit building that she lived in, I mapped it out. It looks to me like she was on the end, so she would have only shared a wall with one neighbor. Again, right. we're, we're I'm basing that off of the idea that the apartment next to her was occupied. Uh, it may not have been. Her apartment... The building she was in, if you picture a U, there's three buildings that make this U shape. And in the center of that U of those three apartment buildings, you have a parking lot that is shared by all of the occupants of those three buildings. So what's interesting to me here is you have a situation where my car is in, in the line with your car. Your car is in the same area as our other neighbor's cars. So as far as the parking lot goes, I think that that's where you're going to have the, the space where the most eyes are on the comings and goings of everybody, be it the occupants or visitors of, the, of your neighbors in that parking lot. So I think people are going to have a, a right. good idea of the activity there just because you're frequently in and out of your car and you have the rear entrance to your home, your apartment, as said, almost all of the people in that apartment, the, uh, that apartment area, or at least this space of Regency arms, because it's not laid out the exact same everywhere throughout Regency arms. But in this space, these people are using their back door as their main in and out to their home simply because of where right. their vehicle would be located. So one thing that was of note I, I want to make sure that I underline this and and really echo this and and be clear here on 
on not to read too much into this, but one thing of note is that neighbors did point out when asked if they saw anything strange or unusual, or if there's anything of note that should be reported to detectives about who may be coming and going from Tracy's apartment, the neighbors told several neighbors told the police about a white man with a white vehicle that had a large dragon decal on the vehicle who had been seen at the apartment several times, but that is key to hone in on. But we should also point out the fact that they followed that up with had not been seen in a couple of weeks. So it could be connected to our murder, but it doesn't have to be because we have a night in question that we really need to focus in on. Now you might not know this answer. I'm sure law enforcement does, but like you said, she has an ex husband and she had a current boyfriend at the time. That boyfriend had the extra set of keys. She was only in that apartment for a few months. When was he gifted those set of keys? Well, I actually, I think we need to kind of clean that up a little bit because there's a couple of things going on. It's the, she has an ex husband. She has an ex boyfriend. And the ex-boyfriend, from my understanding, only stayed there for between about 10 days to possibly two weeks. That relationship was over with before she was killed. So no current boyfriend. There's no current boyfriend that we have listed here. And it sounds like she was pretty vocal and talking with a lot of family and friends about her life. So nobody reported a current boyfriend. Everybody reported this ex-boyfriend and we'll get into him. We talked about him briefly, uh, David Seelock. That was the ex-boyfriend, but I'm guessing he doesn't own that vehicle. No, he does match the description, that very vague description. He's, he's Caucasian male. He owns a white car with a large dragon decal on the vehicle. Dun, dun, dun. Now it makes sense though, that you would see his vehicle right at that apartment several times a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, as stated by neighbors, because he was staying there briefly. Now, as far as the duplicate key goes, he tells police he gave the key back. They don't find it at the scene, but that doesn't mean that he didn't give it back. He claims that he gave the key back. Tracy Harkness's ex-husband, Michael Harkness, said that he was told that David Seelock had a duplicate key to the apartment, which, again, makes sense because David Seelock's not denying that he ever had the key. He was staying staying there. there. We don't know. The the, the thing that we we really want to find out is, one, why didn't they find the duplicate key? And since they did not find the duplicate key, who the hell had it? Well, and what makes this case even more difficult for law enforcement is you have eyewitnesses that saw this ex-boyfriend at the apartment at some point, but because everybody's using their back entrance because that's where the parking lot is. Well, the parking lot is not small. It's, and so if you said to me, oh, did have you seen this white vehicle that had this dragon decal on it? Yeah. When's the last time you saw it? I don't know. I wouldn't, you wouldn't be, it'd be very hard for eyewitnesses to pinpoint the last time they saw that vehicle at that apartment. Well, and the other thing that's difficult too, is remember the back door, the, the door that was used as the main in and out for Tracy and her friends and visitors 
was found locked. It was the front door that nobody used regularly that was found unlocked and open when her body was discovered. Right. The other thing that makes this difficult, and like you said, we know this area, is not only are there several parking lots around those apartment complexes, but there are side roads that are not that far from the apartment. So if this was premeditated, it wouldn't be that hard to park down the street. It's also not it's also not that far of a distance for somebody to park. Um, there's a I'd say within a half of a mile was a large shopping center or a strip mall and it wouldn't be that hard to park in that parking lot and then walk over to the apartment complex. Yeah. No, again, this is a rather safe area and police went out of their way to inform the public that the, they believe the attack on Tracy was personal. This is based off of the fact, given the low rate of violent crime in the area, that fact is going to further bolster that idea. And what eventually would be the detective's theory is that this was a crime of passion. Now, before Tracy was killed, there were, had been no homicides in Grove City in the year of 1992. Tracy was killed in early November. So that tells you, that points out just how low the rate of violent crime would be in that area. She's not murdered until November, and she's the first murder victim of that year. Now, let's see if we can fill out a thorough timeline for Tracy, as that's going to be key to this case, as it always is. So detectives spoke with a lot of people during the first days of the investigation, and then we pieced together a timeline for Tracy based off of these interviews and notes made by the actual investigators. So Tracy Harkness was last seen alive at a lingerie sales party in the Stone Ridge subdivision, this around 10.30 p.m. on November 5th. This was at the home of a woman who Tracy was friends with. Detectives interviewed everybody at this party. Tracy's daughter was in daycare on the day of the 5th and then was picked up by Sherry. Remember, Sherry is... Tracy's ex-husband, Mike Harkness, that's Mike's fiance. I'm assuming that Tracy had a, a good relationship with Sherry because Sherry's helping them raise their daughter, but she also has a good relationship or reportedly good relationship with her ex-husband. Yeah, I, I didn't see any reports about the relationship between Sherry and Tracy, but you can make some inferences, right? I mean, Michael Harkness... It's reported by everybody that, that I could find that they had a good relationship. Michael's words and everybody else's words were that he and Tracy spoke almost daily. And it wasn't just about, hey, can you pick up Megan in 10 minutes? Or, hey, can you, can you cover for me this day? They, they spoke about what was going on in their lives, too. And so it sounds to me like they remained friendly. And then based off of the fact that we know that Sherry is picking up Megan from daycare and that there's a good relationship between Mike and Tracy. I think the inference that we can make here is that yes, the, the relationship between Sherry and Tracy was probably a good one. 
on our timeline here, we should note that Megan was at home with Sherry and her father, Mike, the rest of the evening. This is according to Michael and Sherry. So this is the evening of Thursday, the fifth. Now, remember, we're going to fast forward to after that lingerie sales party, Tracy left that party around 1030. It would be a 10 minute drive for her to get from the party location to her apartment. When she was found, when Tracy was found, remember she was wearing clothing. She was fully clothed. She was wearing the same clothes that she wore to the party, but she's not wearing shoes when she's found. And remember that we found shoes, her purse and her keys in the living room near that footstool. So her friends reported that Tracy usually changed into sweatpants and a sweatshirt almost as soon as she would get home. Again, her purse and keys and shoes were found on the stool or near the stool and the TV was on. So to me, captain, I'm looking at this situation. I'm going, okay, she leaves at 1030. Everybody at the party is saying that Tracy said that she was going home after the party. And there's indication right. at her apartment that she probably came home, kicked off her shoes, set down her purse and keys, flipped on the TV. And before she could change into these sweatpants, as reported by all of her friends, that she would usually change into sweats as soon as she got home, either somebody knocks on the door, she invites somebody in or whatever happens. And then she's attacked. Well, this makes it difficult too for law enforcement because did somebody follow her home from the party or did somebody lay in wait? And once you see movement and you see lights turn on that, that's when you make your move and you go knocking on that front door. So the detective notes are as follows. They say that either a Tracy, let her assailant in the front door or I guess the back door and, and he or she, or they locked the back door and then left through the front door. B the assailant was already in the house when she walked in. This would make sense if either she left a door unlocked, somebody had a key or somebody had access or gained access in some form or fashion to the apartment or C her and her attacker or attackers came in together when Tracy arrived back at her home that night. The other thing too, that's interesting to me here, captain is that the note of friends saying that Tracy sometimes would leave the back door unlocked when she was home. Could it be possible? Like you pointed out that she arrives home, goes through the back door and just didn't lock it behind her when she arrived. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us here in the garage. Make sure you tell a friend, make sure you tell your mother to listen to True Crime Garage. Join us back here in the garage, same bat time, same bat channel. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't listen.